The holy grail of building financial independence is built off of one key concept. Listen today, and we're going to teach you how to do it. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. So, but this is one, we have talked about this for, a, it's a decade in the making. Oh, yeah. It really is, is because we get so excited about this concept. We have implemented this in our own personal lives. We've talked about it so many times in a podcast, but I've never actually done an entire show where I've devoted it entirely on this awesome concept of for scarcity. That's right, guys. We're going to help you today learn how to tighten that financial belt of yours to live a little bit leaner. But when you live leaner, you fast forward 15 years, you fast forward 20 years, and you're like, holy cow, where did all this money come from? Would you agree, Brian, that when it comes to like financial decision-making, even if you don't get everything right, you don't have the most efficiently designed portfolio, and maybe when you go shopping, you don't get the best deals, and you're not always looking for the right sales, and maybe you don't buy the best value, you all these other financial ideas, even if you're getting all of those wrong, but there's one thing that you get right, and it's for scarcity, are the odds pretty high that you're still setting yourself up for success? I'm still, my skin's kind of crawling from you saying not getting the best deal on something. But yes, that is true that I think as long as you get this key component and, and concept taken care of, you really are setting yourself up for success for the future. This is, you know, I, I like to think, and you know, maybe it's because we're, we're quickly approaching the summer months and all the comic book movies come out. But when you think about Batman and his tool belt, this is kind of that that tool that's going to help you really put yourself above and beyond a, a lot of your peers because most people just do not have the discipline to save for the future, to, to live like no one else. So that's what we're going to help you do. And, and here's the other thing I like about this concept of forced scarcity. It's, it's very liberating. A lot of people will tell me, Brian, I'd love to be financially independent, but I just hate budgeting. Budgeting yeah. is not something I want to do. I'm like, well, there's an alternative to budgeting. Or it's, it could be an alternative or it can actually be something that helps even turbocharge the budgeting if you're one of those nerdy people that just likes to track for the sake of tracking, is create this concept or an environment of forced scarcity. I mean, because if you're one of these people and you pay yourself first, if you have everything funded, all of your savings goals, whether it's retirement, cash reserves, debt repayment, saving for the kids' college, and even big things like starting a business if you need seed money for that. All that stuff, if you can set up some forced savings opportunities, it is going to make it where, yeah, it feels lean, but you are walking towards that that pathway of reaching those financial goals. And this is what I particularly love about for scarcity. This is both, you know, in, in my personal financial life, but also we see this with clients all the time. It's a, a magnificent mechanism to kind of protect us from ourselves. So when we're first starting out, we're first beginning, you know, maybe we get that first job, we're starting to kind of get out in the workforce and generate income. When things are tight, it's pretty easy to be scarce because things are scarce. But then as you have some success and maybe there's some excess laying around, it is really easy for lifestyle creep to happen. All of a sudden, even though there are more dollars coming in, you still find ways for more of those dollars to go out. 
So for scarcity prevents you from getting in that cycle where even though things maybe are a little more comfortable than they once were, your lifestyle doesn't continue to move in pace with that, leaving you in a truly scarce position. What we're going to help you with today is kind of to set the show up is we're going to help you know how to set up a for scarcity strategy. Also, how to prioritize your savings goals that are part of this strategy. And then also just how to fund it. How do you get this going and where, where's the, the, how do you do this for yourself? So before I do that though, let me give a shout out to this is the money guy show. I'm your host, Brian Preston. Got my co-host, Mr. Bo Hansen, sitting across from me. And I, I like in our new studio, Bo, I get to look up and I see our map of all the states of clients that we're working with. And these are all listeners that want to take their relationship to the next level. So go to moneyguy.com. If you like what you've been listening to for going on 12 years now of free financial advice, because that's what we do. This is a passion project where we were just trying to give it away. And then a few of you guys reached out to us and said, hey, love to work with you because we like how you look and think about money. And we're like, is this the greatest marketing idea by accident? And sure enough, it is. So we have transitioned where we really have figured out that working with our podcast listeners is one of the the most gratifying and fulfilling things we could do. So thank you for making that happen and check us out at moneyguy.com. So, you know, you mentioned the map, Brian. I'm looking at it. If you happen to be listening to this podcast and you're in Nevada, Montana, Wyoming, New Mexico, Kansas, North Dakota, South Dakota, Arkansas, Plenty of others, but if you're in one of those states, we do not have a pin on our map yet. So we'd love for you to reach out and let us uh, talk to you and figure out how we can put a pin on our map. You, you did about knock them all out, though, because we are in 37, so it's um, yeah, there's, there's not many close. left. But uh, jumping into this thing, let's first talk about where do you start? Because if I was somebody listening, I'd go, okay, I hear you guys talk about this whole four scarcity concept, but what does that mean and where do I get started with this thing? Let's go ahead and break it down for you. So the first thing you need to do, step one of four scarcity, is you got to know what your goals are. That, you know, you're going to notice a trend, and we've read so many studies from Fidelity and others to you that the first part of reaching success is really having a plan of action. Yep. I have somebody who, um, you know, a friend of mine who's thinking about starting a small business, and I sent him some homework. I was like, look, if you're really serious about this, because it's one of those things where Whenever we're at a, a party or something, he approaches me and says, hey, I got this concept, I got this idea. And I say, well, if you're serious about it, here's the things you need to do. It's all big things that you do financially. Don't just assume the passion is going to get you there. You've got to create a plan. And the first thing you did to the plan for, for scarcity is what are your goals? And this can be retirement. It can be education. It can be that you want to be completely debt-free. It can be that you need cash reserves. So go ahead and start thinking about these things. Now, Bo, there's a concept that I love that um, you've always done this for me. When you started working with me, became an associate, then my partner, is you are good about setting up stretch goals. And this is the perfect time to set up stretch goals also. What is a stretch goal for our listeners? Yeah, so it's that one that seems like it may be just a little out of reach. It's sort of the dream big idea, this big, hairy, audacious goal sitting out there that sounds like it may be far off. It's okay to dream for those. It's okay to think about those. Um, and if you write those down, it's amazing as you start kind of going through time how you slowly start kind of working towards that big goal. And then what's really interesting is when you hit it, you say, holy cow, Okay, what's next? What's the next one I'm going to go to? And this, this is what's helped me with stretch goals, Brian. I think, I think this is probably some counsel that you've given me is it's really easy to think about these big goals. Hey, I want to be debt free. I want to have my mortgage paid off. 
Well, for most folks, your mortgage is tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so maybe inside of that big, exciting, exciting goal of being debt free, maybe your goal should be, hey, I'm going to pay a thousand extra bucks in my mortgage this year. And so you have these little small goals all along the way that help you move towards that big stretch goal. What I like about creating this plan of action also is that we're, we're kind of marrying two key things is that we all have dreams. And this is what this step in the process is for you to kind of write down all of your dreams, your financial dreams of what you want to accomplish. But now the, the marrying part of, of this is that we're going to turn that dream. We're going to start taking step by step action to turn it into a reality because dreams are worthless if you're not actually trying to record and then create a plan of action for what you do. And that's, so that's what I like is that we are taking something that's, that's out there in the ethos, your dreams and something you want to accomplish. But we're actually saying, you know what? We're going to put power behind these things. And that's step two is you've got to now, once you have the list of goals and you know what you want to accomplish, step two is prioritizing those goals by need. Because here's the thing I don't want you to do. I don't want you to start spitballing your funding. You know, you have an extra thousand dollars in your bank account and you go, you know what? I'll just send that right over to, you know, the kid's college account. Because it doesn't make sense to set up a funding objective and prioritizing saving for long-term goals when you don't even have your short-term money figured out. And what I mean by short-term versus long-term is that when you're doing goal planning, you know one of the first ones, the very first thing you should shoot for is having your cash reserves yep. set up. That's priority number one. But and Brian, I'm, I'm going to tell sounds, you why, too. That sounds so boring, and cash just isn't making any money. Are you sure that I really need cash reserves? Yeah, I, I, I have this conversation, especially with, with successful people. We see that cash is still paying right at 1%. If you're doing a good job with your cash management, you're getting 1%. A lot of people who are still stuck at the brick and mortars, um, they might be getting 0.05% on their money, which is basically they get two nickels to rub together at the end of each month. I know it's frustrating that your cash is not earning money, but everybody I know is that when I talk to them about their cash, I say, well, let me ask you this. We have another 2008 or another just recession or downturn. You don't think there's going to be some opportunities for that cash? And don't you also, you know, you have things that come out of nowhere, you know, where maybe the, the transmission goes out in your car, or the hot water heater or the washer and dryer in your house. It's just nice to have money in the bank. And I, I understand that yes, you might have some excess cash that's not earning the six to nine to ten percent that you're hoping your diversified portfolio is earning for you, but you want to have cash in the bank because it's an opportunity for the future. Plus, it's also that bridge that allows you to take risk in other parts of your life because you have that good foundation. And Brian, I know we've beat this to death, but just in real quick 30 seconds, if this is someone listening, how do I know how much cash reserves to keep on hand? Well, we tell you the same thing that most financial advisors will tell you is you need to have at least three to six months of cash reserves if you're still in the workforce. If you're out of the workforce, meaning you're living upon your assets, you probably want to have 12 to 18 months of cash reserves. Now, if you're one of these people that's working, you say, okay, here he is. He's throwing out the three to six months. What does that actually mean to me? Um, it means how fast you get a job, meaning that if you lost your job and you need to replace the income stream, what's it going to take to get you back in the workforce? If you're one of these people, you know, hey, I'm, I'm a CPA. Yeah, I've, I've got a great job, but I've also got four other buddies that are constantly trying to get me to come over to their firm yeah, three months might be perfect for you. But if you're one of those people that you, you're maybe in a very specialized field, 
um, you know, technology, medical science, and other things where I've seen people, if you're a researcher and other things, where you might need six months because yeah. it's just not as easy to, to getting in transitioned out of those jobs. So, so take that as your consideration on, on figuring out. Here's the other thing I like about cash reserves being your first funding priority. When we're creating a new concept like for scarcity, where you on purpose are making your life feel lean, um, you know, it can be hard and, and you could actually get it wrong. I mean, you tell yourself, hey, I'm going to save this amount extra and I'm just going to have it fund automatically and, and, and make it happen. You might get too overzealous. Yeah. And it's nice if cash reserves is your first funding objective because you can quickly transfer that money back. Yep. Um, one of the key things we missed on the intro, Bo, that I just want to make sure that we share, because I think it's one of the fundi- the fundamentals of why I love for scarcity, is that because I was talking about how liberating it is and the fact that it's not like a budget. If you're not one of these people that likes budgeting, this is your alternative. But the other part that's liberating is, is if you set up all these funding goals, and then you fund it and there's still money left over, you don't feel that that regret or the lost opportunity cost with the extra money because yeah. you can go spend it freely. Sure. And so that, that's the thing I think with good savers, when you're wired, I, I think they really are going to discover genetically you are you come out of your, your mother with the ability to save or not save. That's why you see, uh, you know, two siblings and one's a saver and one will spend every dime that's coming out. So they're going to discover this at some point, this DNA, this saver's DNA. But I think that it's one of those things that for people who are wired to be prolific savers, you have, just like we did the last podcast on being a miser and how to avoid that, you have to create structures that free you from to enjoy the money. Sure. So it's nice with this forced scarcity. It sounds like it's so constricting because you're creating things where you're paying yourself first, but it is so liberating to people who have that propensity to be prolific savers. So I love that because that's a nice alternative also for the spouse of these people that are sick in a good way with the the addiction to yeah, saving. Absolutely. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. So after we get the cash reserves fully funded, we come back to retirement. Now, this is a key one because we all know the concept of compounding interest and how powerful it is, but realize compounding interest can actually work against you. Sure. So the younger you start saving for the future, it's outstanding that that money, that little bit of money you put put away today can turn into a large sum of money in the future. But if you put off saving for the retirement, maybe you put it off a decade. Um, you can quickly see that number start running away from you because that debt number that you're working for, what's your number for financial independence, can can kind of be too big to grow your assets to the point that it's sad when you reach the point. Maybe you you realize, hey, I need to start thinking about saving for retirement in your in your fifties, and you go, well, heck, the only way I'm going to reach that number is playing the weekly Powerball, and that that can be um, kind of daunting. So we want to make sure that our listeners are taking the the more pro- aggressive approach and, and starting saving as early as possible. So, Brian, hold on. So um, I heard you with the cash reserves, and it makes sense we're going to prioritize that. But I think you forgot some stuff because you said that after cash reserves comes retirement saving, but I've got kids, and they got to go to college, and I know that I want to be debt-free. Are you sure that retirement's supposed to be number two? Well, look, w- without a doubt, and I'm going to come to – Debt repayment, and then we're also going to talk about education funding. But the two things I would throw out on that is that I'm assuming here. Here's some money guy assumptions I have for you because this is behavior that I think 
I, I see it all the time with all of our listeners who become clients. There's some fundamental things that successful people are doing. They're paying off their credit card every month. So I'm considering when I, when I transition from cash reserves to retirement, I'm assuming you're one of those people that's paying your credit card every month. If you're not, if you're carrying a balance at 18% with a credit card company, by all means, it's common sense that you don't want to sit out there with, you know, 18% interest accruing in the background on your credit card. Make sure, if I bring it back to retirement, that you are getting the company match. I'll talk about that in further detail later in the show, but definitely get that free money. But it's, it's one of those things where I'm assuming that you're being responsible with your debt management. As for college funding, you know, we talk about this all the time. And I'll go ahead and this is probably a great transition is that college funding needs to be taken care of. I think even after some of the debt creating a debt repayment plan, because your children have the capability to go do a a co-op, meaning that they can work as well as go to school. You know, there's a lot of career paths, especially when you get into specialized things where if you go to like, I know we come from the, the state of Georgia. Georgia Tech had a lot of people who co-opt where they'd work a semester and then they'd go to school a sure, semester. Yeah. And usually the employer that they were doing the co-op with would pay for their college in for the agreement that they would start working for them after they graduated. So you can do co-ops, you can do student loans, you can get scholarships. The unfortunate thing is that even though there's an industry for college planning and funding for your children, there's not an entire industry for helping you get scholarships and grants for retirement. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's, 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 the, it's a scary thing. And that's why the responsibility truly does fall on you. That yes, there's a safety net with Social Security and Medicare and other things like that, but th- those are safety nets. Who wants to live that retirement? based upon a safety net. So I'm telling you, take the hard steps now and start saving for the future. Um, let's transition to the to the debt repayment because I had something, Bo, we were we had to travel for business this week. Yep. Did a 401k presentation in another state. And while we were there, we got to meet with a prospect mm-hmm. also. And I had something that really just kind of turned my stomach a little oh, bit. Yeah. And I want to talk about this with debt repayment. Um, we recognize Interest rates are at historically low levels, even with the the slight tick up they've had over the last nine months. But here's the thing I want to caution you about. There's an entire industry of people out there that are trying to convince you to go take all of the equity out of your house um, and then put it in the financial markets. I mean, and look, I get it. From a statistical standpoint, it looks great on paper because you take the performance we've gotten in the, the financial markets from 2009 until now, and you're like, wow, if I could go just make that, why would I ever want to prepay your mortgage? And there is truth. I mean, I have a a, a financial person that I really look up to that they do podcasts and they do other things that says you should never, ever, ever pay off your debt. And that's why I don't disagree while you're younger, while you're saving for the future. There's nothing wrong with having a 30-year mortgage, um, you know, Instead of a 15 year mortgage, sure. especially with interest rates as low as they are. But here's your goal and here's the, the healthy perspective I want you to have. I think before you leave the workforce, before you truly are considered financially independent and retired, all debt should be paid. And I've talked about this many, many times in the fact that part of that is a psychological reason. Yes, I know analytically you might be able to grow that money better by investing in the financial markets, but you're going to see when you leave the workforce, 
there's a stress that comes over you because now you realize you have to live off of these assets, not off of working with your brain, your back, and your hands. And that's a scary thing for people because the first downturn happens where there's a recession and the market loses 10, 15%. And now you're like, oh my goodness, those assets that I'm counting on, that army of dollar bills, they just had a setback. Yep. We just lost that battle. So what, what are we going to do? It's if you have all your debt paid for, if your house that you're living for is paid for, the stress level is considerably lower than if you're, you're leveraged in retirement. So I think it's one of those things. Yes, analytically, the answer might make sense on paper to have debt, but it's like all things. Once you've won the game, why take that additional risk? Because just like we talk to, to small business owners, small business owners and others who have strong and high risk tolerance capability, there's another side of risk called risk capacity where you just don't have the time to recover if we hit a downturn. So that's why I always tell people, be careful with people who are trying to get you to leverage especially as you approach retirement to maximize returns. That's, that, that scares me a little bit because you're taking on more risk than might be necessary. I mean, there's a reason you start off in your twenties and thirties with a, a pretty much hundred percent equity portfolio. Right. But by the time you retire, you, you very, very well could have a much know, more conservative portfolio, very conservative with a lot of, you know, bonds, cash and other things that, that tie down the portfolio to be more conservative for you. Um, did we beat on that enough, Bob? No, I think that was good. I think you nailed it. I mean, we get inspired because, uh, like I said, we have a meeting and we see what other people in practice are doing, and it just turns my stomach well, to a degree. And here's just a word of caution, because th- this specific case was just less than ideal. If you're ever in a situation where someone's recommending a financial solution for you that makes your spidey senses go off, by all means, get a second, third, fourth, fifth, eighth, ninth, tenth opinion before you sign off on that. Because some of that stuff can really get you locked up. If you were to go mortgage your house and then purchase some insurance products that have 10-year surrender periods and all this sort of thing, it's just not a great idea in most circumstances. So if something sounds too good to be true and seems too complicated that it doesn't make sense for you, get a second or third opinion to make sure that you're doing what you really should be doing. We've seen also, and this is kind of a sidebar, but... When somebody offers you a guarantee, because, you know, in financial products, guarantee is kind of like a unicorn. Because why do, why do assets, why can you tell a client that potentially you could make six to nine percent? Obviously there's risk involved in that investment. Because you never, we don't know what the market's going to do. You could lose like you lost in 2008. So when you hear somebody say they can guarantee, there has to be a catch. And let me go ahead and tell you, the catch typically is, guys, is that they control your behavior for the next 10 to 12 years. If you can't vote with your feet, meaning that, yes, they can guarantee it because if you can guarantee, unless you take a 10% penalty, 8% penalty, depending upon what it's declined down to, that you can't get a hold of your money, yeah. And it's probably pretty easy to look at historical numbers and see markets usually recover, and if we can keep you from pulling that money out, over this period, we got you locked up. So, and that's, that's something, especially as you approach retirement, what if you had, uh, yeah, you can get 10% of the principal, but what if you had medical expenses? What if you had a family member that needed money? You are locked in. That's why they can guarantee. Um, that's a whole nother show, but I just felt like it was worth throwing yeah, that little a- tidbit out there. Cause it bothers me when people throw that word guarantee out there. Cause that, that gets all of our, you know, our fear, the people who are scared of having any risk in their life, they, and they remember 2008, they're like, ooh, guarantee, 
ask why is there a guarantee? Because there's, and there, believe me, there's a whole nother laundry list of things I could tell you between participation rate and other things that are horrible about it, but we'll just stop at the guarantee. Um, let's talk about education funding. I've already hit this in the fact that you really, we like funding your kids' college because you want to give them a leg up for the future, but it does need to come after you've taken care of funding your retirement goals first. What Brian, you always say this, and I think it's absolutely hilarious every time you say it because I hear you actually say it to people, what what's the best gift that you can give to your children? That you're not moving in their basement. <laughs> I mean, it really is. I mean, you think about it, and I don't think that's ideal for anybody. I mean, I don't care how good of a relationship you have with your children because, I mean, that's what I, I do love when, you know, maybe you have a an adult child who's starting to build a house and maybe they get to live in your basement for five to six months, you know, while the house is getting built. Those can be some fulfilling and awesome times, but it doesn't always work as, as positively when you just have to move in with your, your kids, not because you, you know, there's health issues or other things. No, because you're broke. Yeah. That, yeah. That's, that's less than ideal to have that conversation, um, with your children. So, so load them up on building up that retirement savings so that you can give them that, that financial independence that you're not going to have to move in their basement with them and create some marital strife. Okay, Brian, so I'm sold. I want to start doing this forced scarcity thing. I want to move forward with it. How do I do it? How do I begin the implementation process? So here's where we are. Let me, I've got to give you our goal, but I'm going to tell you this goal, and I always get a few emails right after I share this in a podcast, and people go, that's crazy. We can't say that. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. If I told you to go run 26.2 miles for a marathon, I couldn't go do that right now. But I guarantee you, if I went and started working my body up to it, you, anybody can accomplish these goals. I, I see your face. Maybe I, maybe I couldn't. <laughs> maybe a 5K. <laughs> but, but it's still, when I give you these goals, realize if you're not there, this is what you should shoot for. And we want you to make this an aspirational goal that you are shooting for. And I tell this to people because oh, there's all these retirement calculators and everything else out there. But if you're in your 20s and 30s, those calculators are just not going to do you justice because there's so much time and so many variables that can change on a dime on you that those projections really that far out don't add a lot of value. So here's some guidelines that really can help you know if you're doing a good job of saving for the future. We want you to be saving 15 to 25% of your gross income. Now, when I say gross, that means all of it. So you add up what you make from wages, all your side hustles and everything else, and you need to be saving 15 to 25%. Now, where did that number come from? Because many years ago, it used to be 10%. Sure. You know, you could find articles and you could talk to financial people who but worked in back in the 70s and they'd say, no, 10%, as long as you're saving seven, you know, 10%. The pr- difference is they also used to have pensions yep. back then. Yep. Um, pensions are gone. I mean, unless you work for the government or you have been grandfathered in by your big Fortune 500 company, because they're not even doing it for new employees. Sure. Um, you, you need to save more. And then also, Social Security, it doesn't seem to be as important. Nobody's talking about it. I think it's because government has gotten so comfortable just borrowing and borrowing and borrowing that nobody talks about the underfundedness of Social Security because it just now just blends in with all the other debt of our country. But there are going to be some funding problems with Social Security in the long term. So this gives you a little bit of protection just in case there's some limitations put upon Social Security in the future because realize a lot of you guys listening to this show – you're probably not retiring for another 15, 20, 25 years. You don't want to, you know, 
kind of base everything off of something that's very uncertain. Sure. So 15 to 25%. It also allows me to give a shout out to Dr. Stanley's work with The Millionaire Next Door because that puts you squarely in that hyper saver mentality. And I think that that, that is such a, a viable place to be. And, and look, like I said, it's, if you're training for a, this is very similar to a marathon. You can't come out of the, the gates when you're 24 years old, take your first job. You're not going to be probably saving 15 to 25%. Now, Brian, what if I work for a, a really generous employer and I know that on my 401k, they're matching, you know, three, four, five, six percent. Do I get to count that towards my percentage? <laughs> this is one of those things where clients as well as prospects ask us about it. And, um, I guess because the number, the money is working for you because it, it, but to be conservative, I don't like to count that number. Because I like that to just be a sweetener that's going in there and turbocharging. I think your contribution, and here's the cool thing, and this kind of gets into the implementation of how do you get to 15 to 20% if you're not. Say your employer offers, if you put in, you know, 4%, they'll give you a 100% match up to 4%. You, by all means, should be doing 4%. And that could start you on that process, and that 4% will count towards your saving for retirement and building independence on that 15 to 20%, 25%. It also, you know, when you're saving in a joint account or an individual account, when you're doing the Roth IRAs, all of that stuff counts to the 15 to 25%. Um, but, but, I mean, give me your opinion, Bo. I mean, do you like that we're excluding? Because, I mean, we, we typically exclude. No, the- I tell people exclude it. You know, if, if, you're, if, if that's the thing that gets you to 25%. So if you're doing 22% and then your employer gets you, you know, the extra 3% and you're at 25 that's awesome. It's another form of force scarcity exactly in a way. Right. <laughs> it really exactly is. Right. It's because we are creating your plan so conservative that there's no opportunity for you to let this thing go off the rails and then have that uncomfortable conversation is that, well, it's another night we're eating uh, from the bag of potatoes or another <laughs> peanut butter and jelly sandwich because we just didn't have enough in the tank to get us through retirement. I like avoiding those conversations. And I'm going to try really hard not to go on a long, a long tangent here, but this is a question I get asked all the time, uh, both from peers as well as from podcast listeners. I get the question, hey, you know, I know that, okay, I'm contributing on Ross, that counts. And I am putting money in my 401k or SEP or simple, that counts. I'm doing an HSA, does that count? Do I get to include the dollars I'm putting in HSA? And the answer that I always give is it depends on your behavior. If you're putting money in your HSA and then immediately burning through that do- those dollars this year for current medical expenses, it probably doesn't need to count because those are current expenditures you're paying for. If you're someone who listened to our show from a few months back and you're really taking advantage of this triple tax advantage savings opportunity and you're letting that money grow for the future and it's a really awesome tax strategy, then yeah, I think that the HSA dollars can count as well. I would only, I would only count them if you fully funded your out of pocket maximum. So maybe it's probably year two or three, assuming you had a healthy year that you first funded, didn't use a lot of money. You let that money grow. So you had the, the out of pocket maximum covered for your family or yourself. And then that's what I would consider. Once you fully funded, um, the anything that could be used for that one year of health insurance needs, then yes, count that towards the long term. Cause it does, HSAs do have some huge tax benefits. And they can be um, counted towards that savings goal. So, Brian, I'm somebody I'm just starting out brand new in my career, right? And I'm making, you know, this salary, this entry-level salary. And it's really hard for me to get to, you know, 15 to 25%. But I'm going to do something. What is a tip or a trick as I move through my career 
that I could possibly implement that might help me get to that 15, 20, 25% number? You know, the first thing we shared was obviously do the employer matching because that's free money. Nobody, we just did a 401k presentation, Bo, and we gave away some money. And I think it kind of got, <laughs> you would have thought Oprah Winfrey showed up and was giving away her favorite things because I, you know, I held, I said, who will, I said, I wanted to do a magic trick. And I said, you know, who's got a hundred dollar bill in their pocket? And everybody was acting like they really didn't want me to hold their hundred dollars, but we eventually did find somebody who would let me hold it. And I said, "Here's the magic trick," and I doubled it and gave it to them, and they went crazy. And it was just an awesome, awesome experience. So one one of two things just happened right now, Brian. Either everyone listening is saying, "Man, we got to get these guys to come do our four hundred one k because they give away money," <laughs> or every financial advisor listening right now is like, "Man, that's genius! I got to start doing that in my presentation." Well, but here's the thing: I, I but and they all agreed to them. As I said, did you see how everybody got? So super excited about a hundred dollar bill and then a twenty dollar bill and anything else that we gave away at the presentation. And I said, look, I could show up here tomorrow if I told you right now, show up tomorrow morning with a thousand dollars and nobody would not be here with a thousand dollars because it's free money and we all like free money. But yet employer, sometimes employee participation can be low and it's the exact same thing. So the first thing for a young, brand new out of college person, Make sure you're getting that employer match because that's free money is the key concept we talk about at every 401k presentation we do. So do that. But then the next thing, you start getting, maybe you get a, a year-end bonus or you get a, a pay raise. And, and maybe your pay raise is 4% or 5%. Why not? Yes, take a little bit of that for lifestyle because you want to, as you're progressing your career, you want to hopefully get you know, a nicer car down the road, a nicer house and other things. But if you get a 5% pay raise, why not take 3% of that and push it towards savings? I mean, after all, you were living on less than that originally, right? Yeah. I mean, and that's the, that's the thing that, and that's, that's really the, the crux and the foundation of for scarcity. If you can just all through the process remain disciplined to where as more money comes in, you don't get that lifestyle creep. And then it really is, I, I tell you guys, and, and I don't mean to, and I'm going to be horrible by the time I'm 50 and 60 because I'm so sentimental and I, I'm reflective on things now that I'm getting to be in my mid forties is that you do start looking in my forties. Now that assets have started reaching a point, you start looking back and you go, Wow, it was, it, you know, it was one of those things, just a little bit of sacrifice here and there. And yes, it felt lean in certain parts, but you look back and you hear from some of your friends that are now starting to have the realization that retirement will be 20, you know, within 20 years. And, and they're starting to panic on the opposite side. Instead of getting that fulfillment that I have grown and built these assets up, they're kind of getting the exact opposite side of it where they're like, Oh my goodness, this is a burden that might be too big to fill. And that, and that's that's why I tell you, do the hard work while you're younger. I know it stinks. Look, um, and, and this is probably a great way to kind of close out the show, is that I look at things, meaning when I say things, things that you can buy, is they're kind of like a sugar high. Mm-hmm. You you know, and this is why, Bo, you pick on me all the time because you say that I am probably the most prolific researcher Without of doubt. goods that you know. And I always get deals usually when I purchase stuff. But but here's the thing. I think some of that is cathartic because it protects me from because I talk myself out of buying stuff. Sure. That that mega research, that OCD focus on research usually is a, a coping mechanism for me. So then by the time it's time to actually go pull the trigger and buy this product, I just don't do it because I've researched this thing and I find out, oh, yeah, I want that. But guess what? If I can wait three months, they're coming out with a new 
new batteries in that type right, of right, car. Right. Are, they, are the autopilots getting updated? You know, I always come up with something that, well, if I'll just wait three months, it'll have better technology yeah, in it. Yeah. And that truly some of that is a coping mechanism because I just, I, I, I don't like to pull the trigger. Um, so, so that's one of the things is you have to learn to get past the sugar high buying things and realize there's more value in actually having assets. And that's what that, tr- that, that kind of close out the show. I want, I want to give you one more aspirational thing and hopefully inspire you to start building, turning those dreams into reality is that we have talked about being addicted to saving so many times. And we say, well, why aren't there entire industries set up? Like there are for people who are addicted, you know, who maybe are gaining too much weight, who have become obese, um, you know, so you're addicted to food or have eating problems. Um, There's also industries set up for people who unfortunately struggle with alcohol, drugs, but you don't see any cottage industries popping up to help you cope with being addicted to saving. And the reason is, is because these are typically people who are accomplishing goals. They're also, you know, have peace of mind from having money in the bank. They're building a legacy. They're building an empire of assets that they can do incredible things with. And this is not just for the sake of being a miser. That's why if you are one of those people that struggles with how much is enough, am I saving too much? Or you're maybe you're the spouse listening to this. Go back and listen to our last podcast on tips and tricks on how not to be a miserable financial miser. But we do think that there is something to being addicted to saving and realizing that that sugar high of buying things is so short term, but the fulfillment of going the road less traveled and actually building assets, it sticks with you. It sticks with you long enough that you can also help your family. I'm, I'm, like I said, you get to be in your forties like me, you get sentimental about things and you look back and you go, that worked. So take it from somebody who works with financially independent people, very successful business owners, as well as entrepreneurs, um, as well as executives for companies, as well as my own walk towards trying to build financial independence. It is fulfilling if you will just take this step and understand for scarcity. Guys, we love doing this podcast. We hope that this connected with you. If you're in some of these states that we don't have clients yet, Reach out to us. If you're in those states, we still want to hear from you because we're always looking to grow the Money Guy family and take those relationships to the next level. You mean states, Brian, like Kentucky, Michigan, <laughs> North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, Nevada, New Mexico? <laughs> this is the this is the danger of having this map right by the studio, right? Because you can just look at it. You, you, I don't think we have one on Hawaii either. Oh, so. Hawaii. That's a good so, one. Yeah. Um, but, but definitely, if you want to take the relationship to the next level, reach out to us. Also, go check us out, moneyguy.com. We always put out new contact information. Remember, if you like what you hear, maybe you just found us because somebody referred you to us, and you're like, gosh, I like what these guys are doing. Um, I'd like to go hear what they had in the past. Just go on our website, moneyguy.com. Give us your email address. That's it. There's no premium membership. There's no cost. It's all free because we feel like if we pay it forward, it comes full circle And we create this beautiful cycle where the more successful you are, the more successful we are. I love doing the podcast. Could not do it without all the love and support that you, the Money Guy family, give us. So thank you. I'm your host, Brian Preston. We'll talk to you in two weeks. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston. Brian Preston is a principal with Abound Wealth Management. Abound Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Security and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with the securities laws and regulations. 
A bound wealth management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. Mm-hmm.